I actually quite like Oprah. A lot of charisma, a lot of energy, uh, entertaining talk show host, and, and obviously an astute businesswoman of the feminine scene. But uh, this audition for a potential political run, which is what it seemed like to me, her speech at the Golden Globes, was very interesting. And if you break it down into its major components, you can see just what a plea for access to political power it might, in fact, be. So if you are aiming to get support from left-wingers, from the Democrats in America, you must, of course, particularly if you're Black, focus on racial injustice, trot out a tale of horrendous treatment of Blacks by whites. You must side with the mainstream media. You must praise the mainstream media because they're on the left and they need, of course, your groveling towards their hypocritical pseudo-integrity. And this whole thing, when you sort of break it down, is kind of a flyby. It's a um, toe in the water. Uh, It is a um, kind of flare sent up, seeing if we can figure out, if she can figure out the lay of the land about whether it's worth running for office. So, uh, So, of course... When she starts, and this is a woman, like when I was growing up, this is sort of part of my issue with this whole racial, racism, racism, racism thing on the part of whites. When I was growing up, I mean, uh, Bill Cosby was enormously popular, Nat King Cole a little bit before my time, you know, Sam Cooke was enormously uh, popular, and I, nobody uh, had, uh, William Ash was, a, was a, a tennis player, I think his name was William Ash was his last name, I think, a tennis player was black. There was not this oh, well, you can't go and see this Morgan Freeman movie because he's black. You know, there there was none of that in particular going on. And so this idea to me, I'm just telling you my sort of honest and lived experience. Um, The most popular guy in my high school was a black guy, um, very great and nice guy. And there was never, to me, this, well, you know, what what you got to do as a white person, you got to wake up, get out of bed, and immediately get on your bat phone to all the other whites trying to figure out how to keep black people down. Nobody has time for that. We're we're all busy. We all, nobody has time to sit there and focus on keeping people down. And so when she starts off the speech, she starts talking about being in 1964, sitting in her mom's house in Milwaukee and watching Sidney Poitier, who again, great actor. And uh, I loved his movies when I was younger. If I watched them again, I'm sure I'd Love them uh, even now. And uh, Sidney uh, Poitier, Harry Belafonte, fantastic singer, enormously charismatic, entertaining, entertainer, a bit of a loony lefty in my view, but there was not, none of this sort of barrier. There was none of this, well, you can't uh, like these people because like, it just wasn't that way. So she talks about how, you know, watching Sidney Poitier get his um, Oscar. Uh, was hugely meaningful. And and I don't know, I mean, is that what allowed her to believe it was possible and uh, all of that? And so you have to, if you're going to do the flyby of the Democratic tickler, right, see if you can fit into the, then you have to sort of, you have to talk about uh, oppressed uh, women, oppressed blacks, and again, praise the mainstream media. So she does, of course, talk about how her mom was tired from cleaning other people's uh, houses. And it's interesting because this is a sort of female thing too. There's this theory that women need to see somebody else succeeding in order for them to succeed, right? So she, well, I saw Sidney Poitier and therefore I could take the, well, I don't know who Sidney Poitier saw, but if he could do it without an example, why, why do you need, why, you know, why do you need? It's like, why aren't women interested in politics? I mean, in general, uh, the more free women become, the less interested they become in politics. 
But I say, well, we got to have women reading the news. It's like, why do you need that? <laughs> why do you need that? I mean, if I said, well, I need to see white males or I'm not, I mean, that would be crazy. I mean, you, you take your wisdom from wherever you can get. And uh, so her success, you would think, would be something about, well, you know, like I made it and therefore uh, there was no big, huge resistance to uh, people. And of course, people tuned into the Oprah Winfrey show. And really loved what she had to say and what she had to do. And yes, massive energy, a lot of charisma, great uh, interviewer in many ways. And so, but she does have to display her bona fides regarding the democratic talking points, which means there has to be victimhood, there has to be oppressors. And the old Marxist victimhood of like capitalist versus proletariat, that kind of gone by the wayside. So now it's got to be patriarchy versus uh, females. It's got to be whites versus blacks. See, whites, so astonishingly racist, so astonishingly against other races that uh, Chinese, Japanese, like East Asians, uh, they make more money in white countries than white people do because just, just so racist. Now, I would absolutely love, love, love to live in a world where skin color was as inconsequential as hair color. But unfortunately, we don't live in that world because the races act differently, uh, all the way from IQ to, to criminality to family cohesiveness. And that, of course, is one of the big problems. The question is, well, why do they act differently? And there are biological explanations, there are genetic explanations, there are cultural explanations, there are environmental explanations. But all of that complexity is generally just swept aside and the demon wings of white racism is put on the broad and pallid foreheads of Caucasians from here to eternity because nobody wants to talk about the more complex uh, issues. And so she does set herself up as, you know, I was a vulnerable person, uh, my mother was uh, abused or, or my brother was ground under, uh, my mother was ground, uh, ground under by the system, but I saw this vision and I was able to... And of course, I'm glad that she saw Sidney Poitier, maybe that enhanced her ambitions, but it was her own skill, energy, ambition, and outlandish talent that secured her a top spot on TV and her magazine and her channels now and website and all of that. It's a big deal. She also launched um, Dr. Phil's career. She met him while she was being sued by a bunch of meat manufacturers and liked him, and, and uh, she ended up bringing him on her show. And I think he's done a lot of good uh, in the world in many ways. So uh, she was able to achieve what she wanted. And yes, listen, there are, there were barriers. I'm sure there were institutional barriers and so on. We all face those. I mean, I don't mean to shock anyone, but try being a pro-capitalist objectivist in, say, the leftist Canadian artistic, academic, and literary environment. Uh, you think that's easy? There are many more blacks in higher education than there are objectivists. And there are a lot of objectivists in the world. A lot of people who are pro-free market who are not being hired. Try being a conservative and trying to make it in Hollywood. I th it's harder for a conservative to make it in Hollywood than for a black person to make it in Hollywood. Statistically, that does seem to be the case. And uh, try being pro-free market. And just you know, try, being, uh, try being against Harvey Weinstein's simian predations. Uh, and making it in Hollywood. It's, um, yeah, everybody faces their barriers. And uh, I guess some of us talk about it more, more than others. But this is a very real thing. It's a very real thing. The barriers that I faced in the art world, in the academic world, and in the literary world for being a pro-free market, small government kind of guy were enormous. And 
very outspoken, very clear, very clear. And um, no, ain't no affirmative action for me <laughs> or, or people like me. So um, there are, of course, challenges uh, to do with a wide variety of opportunities. Now, then she switches to, I want to thank the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. She said, we know the press is under siege these days. Do we? Do we, Oprah? Do we really just, just know that, that they're under siege? See, again, you want to make them the victims standing like stout saplings against a horrifying conservative wind and so on. And uh, we know. We just, we know. Press is under siege. Well, it's kind of, they are under siege by uh, the flying shrapnel known as basic facts. And that can be a big challenge to them. And they, she went on to say, we, we also know it's the insatiable dedication to uncovering the absolute truth that keeps us from turning a blind eye to corruption and to injustice. This is vaguey, 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 right? And, but of course, it's not hard to figure out what she's saying. So she says, the insatiable dedication to uncovering the absolute truth. Uh, that, is that really what the press is about these days? Then, I mean, just look at the number of retractions and the number of stories they've gotten wrong uh, just over the past two years. Uh, absolute truth. Donald Trump has a 2% chance of winning. The, ab- the relentless, insatiable dedication to recovering the absolute truth. And then she says that keeps us from turning a blind eye to corruption and to injustice. Now, by corruption and injustice, she is, of course, referring to Donald Trump's presidency. To, to tyrants and victims and secrets and lies, right? Tyrants being Trump, uh, victims being, I guess, everyone else uh, who's not uh, a deplorable and secrets and lies. Uh, this is all, I guess, is to do with the Russian investigation and uh, so on, because Lord knows there were no secrets and lies ever associated with, with the Clintons. So uh, this is, again, uh, you know, the dog whistle thing, like the silent call out kind of stuff. Uh, the press has no interest in, in absolute truth. I mean, vast majority of like 90 plus percent of reporters in Washington, D.C. are out and out Democrats and they try and hire and avoid anybody who's not on the left. So this idea that it's not just an echo chamber, it's not just confirmation bias, but they're just going to seek out truth no matter what. I mean, can you imagine? Just imagine this. You know, she was the one who was, I mean, praising Barack Obama to, to an ins- like a literally to me insane degree. Like he is the one. He is the one. He can turn back time. He can break us out of the matrix. Can you imagine if uh, she was talking during Barack Obama's realm? and was talking about the press, that she would say the insatiable dedication of the press to uncovering the absolute truth that keeps us from turning a blind eye to corruption and to injustice, to tyrants and victims' secrets and lies? Of course not, because she was pro-Obama and is anti-Trump. And therefore, the press is being besieged by reality, maybe the alternative media too, and um, would never have happened under Obama. She would never have said anything like that. She went to say, I want to, I want to say that I value the press more than ever before as we try to navigate these complicated times, which brings me to this. What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. Okay, so here we fragment. We're going from the absolute truth to speaking your truth. Your truth is this postmodern call out, conscious or not. Your truth, speaking your truth, having your voice, having a voice. Uh, this is just basically a way of saying, I don't have any facts, reason, and evidence behind what I'm saying. But if you shut me up, you're sexist. If you criticize me, you're sexist. If you say, reject my arguments because they're nonsensical, you're sexist. I demand, I must have a voice, I must have a voice. It's like, eh, everyone at karaoke night has a voice. That doesn't mean they're going to end up playing Carnegie Hall. <laughs> so 
She says, and I'm especially proud and inspired by all the women who have felt strong enough and empowered enough to speak up and share their personal stories. Yeah, this empowered and personal stories and speaking up and voice. And I mean, this is such girly stuff. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, we would get involved in very involved and ferocious debates with my friends. And the idea that if I was wrong, I was wrong. If I didn't have a good argument, it doesn't just come out of nowhere what I'm able to do now. I mean, if I didn't have a good argument, I would be dismissed and mocked and told to go start again. The idea is like, well, I, I want to have, a, I must be empowered and my personal story and I got to have a voice. Like people would, I mean, would make no sense whatsoever. You know, it, it, to me, it's as simple as you, you go up and, you know, they always say, do your homework, right? Show your work on the, show your homework on the, please don't call on me, please don't call on me. And um, you'd go up and, and let's say, just to take a silly example, you said, Two and two equal five. And the teacher would say, uh, that's wrong. And, and you'd say, no, no, no. What do you, don't oppress me. Don't oppress me. I'm, I'm finally feeling strong enough and empowered enough to speak up, to, st- to share my personal stories about my truth that two and two make five. Who are you to squelch me? <laughs> I demand to have a voice. She goes on to say, each of us in this room are celebrated because of the stories that we tell. And this year, we became the story. And again, this story stuff is, I think it's postmodernism stuff, is competing narratives and everybody has a story. And well, that's just saying that it's admitting that nothing you say is true. I mean, openly admitting that nothing you say, I have a narrative. And my narrative, if I'm compelling enough or charismatic enough, and this is basic sophistry, Right. It's to make the worst argument appear the better through rhetorical tricks and through charisma and, and jokes and all that kind of stuff. So, and this, again, this is allusion to the Me Too thing, right? Now, you can look at the photos online. So you've got pictures of photo, uh, photos of, of Oprah, like, whispering into Harvey Weinstein's giggling, trollish face. And there's some actress that, that Oprah is, like, she's grabbing onto Oprah as, like, Harvey Weinstein's moon crater of a depraved head looms in from the left top of the photo and the woman's like ah! and Oprah's like ah. and so the idea that Oprah had no idea about any of this stuff to me is not very credible she's no idea about any of this stuff I mean she goes to the Oscars and what was it Seth MacFarlane who made the joke about all oh, yes a bunch of women who got nominated for an award a bunch of women who no longer have to be pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein so the idea that Oprah had absolutely no idea about any of the casting couch stuff that went on in Hollywood, to me, is ridiculous. I mean, in my view, in my belief, I mean, of course she knew. Of course she knew. And so, like most of the people, like they're all wearing black because, you know, black is the new denial, and they're all wearing black. And there was a woman, I'm minding my Twitter account, but there was a woman who uh, had a T-shirt said, poverty is sexist. And of course... Women end up poorer, uh, and a lot of times that's because they choose really bad men to have children with, right? And the men don't stick around, and they end up poor. Or they divorce men because they imagine that there's this wonderful life of uh, rubbing clay on some sculpted belly uh, over in the uh, artistic part of town, and they end up just with a bunch of cats and uh, no loyalty from their pets. Uh, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you die in your apartment and there's a dog around, I mean, the dog will wait a long time to eat you. But cats, man, they're just like, well, I think she stopped breathing. I'm going in. And um, so, yeah, 
pretty sure she knew. So anyway, this this uh, poverty is is sexist. You know, everyone thinks about women. You could easily make the case. Ah, oh, thank goodness, thank goodness, somebody's finally calling attention to the huge problem of male homelessness. Like vast majority of men are homeless because you, you know, what do they say? Uh, what do you call a drummer without a girlfriend? Homeless. Because uh, you can't, uh, men can't trade sex for a place to stay. So, um, so in my view, she knew. And this idea, she's now going to step back and say, well, these brave, honorable, wonderful women. Well, where were the superheroes of women who knew? She goes on to say, well, uh, but it's not just a story affecting the entertainment industry. It's one that transcends any culture, geography, race, religion, politics, or workplace. So I want tonight to express gratitude to all the women who have endured years of abuse and assault because they, like my mother, had children to feed and bills to pay and dreams to pursue. Mm. That's interesting. That's, and this is the hatred of the family, right? The, the promotion of single motherhood and the driving of the massive scalding wedge between men and women that is the leftist agenda, that is the communist agenda, uh, frankly, for the West. Because, you know, they, they chose to become mothers they choose to become mothers, and therefore, they have endured years of abuse and assault. Well, statistically, that's absolutely, completely, and totally false. Um, the safest, like, by far, the safest place for women to be is in a marriage. By far. The safest place for children to be is in a marriage. You want a safe space for women? It's a marriage. You want a safe space for children? It's a marriage. Children are more than 30 times more likely to be abused if they're in a house with a non-biologically redded man around. It's just the way it is. So you have women who choose bad men. They end up being single mothers, which means they can't attract quality men because what man wants to pour decades and hundreds of thousands of dollars into raising another child, another man's child. I mean, it's not even remotely an act of self-esteem, you know, outside of people who want to adopt. And so I'm like talking about single moms kind of thing, right? And so you end up with these trashy men floating around. And rather than say to their mom, why did you choose a bad man? They say, well, all men are bad. And therefore, ah, your mother floats up with the angels and no agency, no responsibility. Women are the gatekeepers of sex, but they're not responsible for who they choose as the fathers of their children. Even though for hundreds of thousands of years, women's specific genetic biological evolution was to make sure that they choose the right men to be the father of their children because the consequences of choosing the wrong men was so disastrous. Women evolved to have the capacity to grit their teeth, cross their legs, shy away from the uh, pretty unstable alpha beauty boy, the himbo, and choose often the beta stable provider. This is why there are beta providers. This is why the entire world is not just a harem of alphas uh, and uh, 10 women, right? It's because women know exactly how to choose a good provider. And then with the welfare state and other things, this kind of went by the wayside, but Women are still responsible uh, for what they do. And so rather than say, gosh, my mother chose a really terrible man to be my father and she should have chosen better and it was her responsibility more so than the man's, right? You can't have privilege without responsibility, <laughs> of course, right? Uh, according to the narrative, why it's a privilege and therefore they have responsibility in the matter of racism. And uh, so women have privilege, right? Men ask them out, men pay for dates, men pursue them, uh, women choose, men propose, you know, it's eeny, meeny, miny, dick, Right. And so because of all this privilege with great power comes great responsibility. So women are responsible for who they choose to let impregnate them and to be the father of their children. And because of female privilege, people don't want to say, 
mom really screwed up. Mom chose a terrible man to be the father of my husband. Uh, sorry, to be the father. Oh my God. So what am I in the Arkansas here? So uh, my my mother made a terrible decision for to, to bed with the man who was supposed to be my father. He didn't stick around. He was abusive. He was mean. He was drunk. He was whatever, right? And then rather than say, my mother made a bad decision. There are good men out there. She chose a bad man. That's on her. Well, all men are bad and the women are victims. Victim, 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 victim. <laughs> it's like a broken record. Ah, there are two men, two men in the leftist paradigm. There are only two men around. The first guy's name is Vic and the second guy's name is Tim. Yeah, that joke took a little while, but I think it was worth it. So she says, they're the women whose names we'll never know. They are domestic workers and farm workers. They are working in factories and they work in restaurants and they're in academia, engineering, medicine, and science. Uh, generally not. Like the higher IQ women choose high IQ men and they uh, stand, tend to stay together with those men. So no, uh, they're not evenly distributed among the IQ bands and among the um, career bands. There are exceptions, of course. She goes on to say, they're part of the world of tech and politics and business. There are athletes in the Olympics and there are soldiers in the military. So, yeah, the, the call out to the general heroism and victimhood of, men as, of women as a whole is, you know, flashing her Democrat, leftist, uh, socialist-y bona fides. And it's natural and inevitable that that will be the case. But you can't, you know, without boomeranging back to racial injustice, you just can't complete your bingo card of leftist propaganda. So then she says, and there's someone else, Reese Taylor, a name I know, and I think you should know too. In 1944, ooh, 1944. So what, 73 years ago? That's, um, boy, that's a long time ago. See, before we get into this, let me just sort of mention something. Um, you know, black males, Two, three, four percent of the American population commit close to 50% of the crimes in America. If there is a hate crime between the races, it's far, far more likely to be a black attacking a white than vice versa. In terms of rape, thousands of white women are raped by black men every single year. Almost no, almost no black men, sorry, black women are raped by white men. And so when it comes to interracial violence and oppression and, and so on, let's just say it's not crazy to think that there may be conversations on both sides of the aisle, but that's never allowed. It's never admitted, can't be discussed, can't be talked about. White grievances regarding black criminality cannot be discussed, cannot be brought up. Well, I can. I can. Uh, I will, because it's true, right? And this relentless pursuit of truth, according to Oprah, see, you got a relentless pursuit of truth. So important, objective, valuable, truth. So just taking my marches, marching orders from you, Oprah. So when it comes to um, being victims of interracial crime, whites have an enormous amount more to complain about in the present than blacks. Sorry, you can look up the data yourself, but interracial crime is vastly more so black-on-white crime than white-on-black crime. It's just the way that it is. Now, given that she's really into the relentless pursuit of objective truth, <laughs> she goes back to 1944. So she says, in 1944, Reese Taylor was a young wife and mother walking home from a church service she'd attended in Abbeville, Alabama, when she was abducted by six armed white men, raped and left blindfolded by the side of the road coming home from church. Well, she mentioned church again. You've got to do the church bookend, and it makes for an effective story, and this is not to minimize 
the horrifying crimes that this woman was uh, subjected to. She goes on to say, they threatened to kill her if she ever told anyone, but her story was reported to the NAACP, where a young worker by the name of Rosa Parks became the lead investigator on her case, and together they sought justice. But justice wasn't an option in the era of Jim Crow. The men who tried to destroy her were never persecuted. Now, that's, you know, when you speak, I assume she would practice the speech, but when you speak extemporaneously, sometimes you get the wrong word. What she meant to say, I'm going to assume, was the men who tried to destroy her were never prosecuted, uh, not persecuted, but no biggie. Reese Taylor died 10 days ago, says Oprah, just shy of her 98th birthday. She lived as we all have lived too many years in a culture broken by brutally powerful men. For too long, women have not been heard or believed if they dare speak the truth to the power of those men. But their time is up. Their time is up. Okay, so I guess this is the men, right? Heard or believed if they dared speak. So again, did Oprah know about any of these endless predations of powerful men in Hollywood? In the television industry, in the media industry as a whole, in which she worked low these many decades? She had no clue, no idea. No one ever mentioned it to her. She never heard any whispers. She never had a single clue. Now, when she heard, as I'm sure she did, when she heard women complain about predations of powerful men, did she believe them? Did she act? Did she do anything? I wonder. See, now that brave men and women, and in particular women, have broken the story about Weinstein, which caused all of the dominoes to fall with regards to the other men, well, now that they're out of power, and now that they're already, their power is broken, I guess it's very courageous to, to speak up. So their time is up, but my question is, Oprah, why wasn't their time up when you, as I'm sure you did, found out about this many decades ago? She goes on to say, and I just hope, I just hope that Reese Taylor died knowing that her truth, like the truth of so many other women who were tormented in those years, and even now tormented, goes marching on. Now, this is interesting. Because not that far away uh, in, in England, uh, in the United Kingdom, uncountable numbers of white British girls, and I assume some boys, have been preyed upon by Pakistani Muslim gangs uh, who have raped them on an industrial scale. It, it, you know, it, it could be considered uh, more important, more relevant, more present than what happened in 1944. Just a possibility that you could speak out against that. But of course, she won't. Just as people on the left won't, because Muslims tend to vote for the left, and you understand how all this works, right? She goes on to say, uh, let's see, it was somewhere in Rosa Parks' heart almost 11 years later when she made the decision to stay seated on that bus in Montgomery, and it's here with every woman who chooses to say, me too. And the Rosa Parks thing, okay, she was trained by communists, but there was injustice and so on. But the injustice was government-based. But this is the great horror. Slavery was a government program. Jim Crow was a government program. Segregation was a government program. The buses that ran in Montgomery did not want to put the blacks in the back. Blacks tended to be poorer and therefore would take the bus more often. Therefore, they didn't want to offend their biggest repeat customers. And so it was a government law that put the blacks in the back. The fault lies with the government. Fault doesn't lie with the average person. It was only a couple of percentage points 
of whites in America who owned slaves, and most whites in America really despised and disliked the institution of slavery, I mean, some for moral reasons, of course, and some for the fact that they were forced into slave patrols when they'd rather be home with their family, and also because the presence of slavery drove down the price of wages, right? Because it was like really old-time third-world immigration. And so all of these government programs were responsible for a lot of these divisions and hostilities between the races. And when the government was doing all of this terrible stuff, then the activists should have said, it is the government that is the fault, it is the government that is the problem. You say, ah, well, you know, but the the whites had racist views and so on. Well, yes, they did. And who were they raised by? The government in the form of government schools. Nobody talks about the government schools and their effect that they have on the mentality of people. And so uh, the fundamental issue, right? I mean, the communists love setting up oppositions. They love setting up tensions. They love setting up hostilities between groups, mining the inevitable resentments accumulated by all groups that interact throughout a long history. So they, I mean, a rational person, a small government person, a sensible person, would have said, well, we've got to get rid of racially biased laws, which we do. And we still have a lot to do in that regard. We have to get rid of racially biased laws. All shall be equal before the law. And therefore, the protest should not be against the bus company who is simply obeying the law and, and require it in order to stay out of jail and keep their license or whatever the hell they had to do. So we must not pick on the people who are subject, subjected to the law we must pick on the lawmakers. Therefore, you go to City Hall and you say, rescind the law that forces blacks into the back of a bus. But no, see, they have to attack capitalism. They have to say, the fault is not the government. The fault is not propaganda. The fault is not state power. The fault is white people. Inevitable. Widen the divisions, so salt in the wounds, cause problems, cause destabilizations. She goes on to say, and every man, every man who chooses to listen, ah, you see, Every man who chooses to listen, look at all of the people. I mean, just for God's sakes, look at Natalie Portman. What was in 2009, she signed a petition to get Roman Polanski out of being in, I think it was a Swiss jail for his, I think it was associated as Sumais, with his uh, rape of a very young girl when he was uh, staying at Jack Nicholson's house, uh, I guess it was in the decades ago. You have Hollywood standing up and cheering for Roman Polanski. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, Meryl Streep, you know, I, when I was younger. I did a lot of theater. I went to theater school and acted quite a bit, wrote plays, directed, and so on. And she was like a goddess of, of method acting or, or the way that she, I mean, she's amazing stuff. Do any. And so now, to see her greatest role as a virtue signaler, which I guess she has been all along, it, it's pretty horrifying. See Meryl Streep up there cheering for Roman Polanski. And again, there are pictures of Oprah whispering into a giggling Roman, uh, a giggling Harvey Weinstein's ear. Oh, I could figure out what these men have in common. Anyway, it is just astonishing. You see, there were lots of women who knew about it, but you see, it's only men who who choose to listen. Now, did the average man in America have more power to bring this to the public light, or did Oprah Winfrey? with a nationally syndicated daytime television show with magazines, websites, you name it. Did she have the power to bring this to the forefront? Why did it have to wait so long? Had she never heard about it? Did she know nothing about it? 
But you see, now it's the average man who needs to listen, not virtually media omnipotent Oprah Winfrey. <sighs> she says, in my career, what I've always tried my best to do, whether on television or through film, is to say something about how men and women really behave, to say how we experience shame, how we love and how we rage, how we fail, how we retreat, persevere, and how we overcome. I've interviewed and portrayed people who've withstood some of the ugliest things life can throw at you, but the one quality of all of them, that one quality all of them seem to share is an ability to maintain hope for a brighter morning, even during our darkest nights. <sighs> I guess like Theresa May. Nevertheless, she persevered in not persevering. She says, so I want all the girls watching here now to know that a new day is on the horizon. <laughs> yes, astronomy still works. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight. Oh, yeah, praise your audience. That's, that's edgy. And some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, me too, again, right? The leaders take us to the time. You can't do it yourself. You have to wait for the right leader to drag you along. And, um, yeah. And she doesn't apologize. She doesn't say, because, look, she was in the media for decades. If she knew, she has a huge amount to apologize for. If she doesn't know, if she doesn't know, then she's asking that the world be moral when she genuinely had no idea about rampant abuse sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, rampant abuse all around her for decades. She had no idea about it. But white people are responsible for all the evils in the world. And right? <laughs> You understand? If she knew, she has a lot to apologize for. If she didn't know, she can't tell other people to be good because she did not find even the knowledge to notice the rampant corruption and abuse all around her. She lived in this magic bubble of ignorance, had no idea whatsoever. Well, if you're right in the heart of the media, right in the heart of an abusive empire of predation, and you just don't have a clue that any of it's going on, who the hell are you to lecture other people to notice evil and do good? <sighs>